This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good afternoon. Yes, I'm Giovanni Singleton, Lunch Homes Coordinator, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here today for the opening of our 17th season. All right? Maybe. Come on, yeah. So um, first, I'd, I want to invite you to sign up on our email list um, and also pick up our event poster for the entire year over at the librarian's desk. Um, we are also on Facebook, so log on and become our friend. We'd love to see you there. Um, also on our website, um, lunchpoems.berkeley.edu, you can view this reading and all of our past readings as webcasts and also on YouTube. Uh, next month, on October 4th, we will have Kathleen Fraser, one of the foremost poets of the Bay Area and of her generation. Now, please join me in welcoming our hosts for this afternoon's program, Robert Hass, Director of Lunch Poems, and David Dewar, the Library's Director of Development. Thank you. Thank you, Giovanni. Thank you um, all for being here. It's, this is always thrilling to do, and the accumulation of voices from this first reading over these years, many of which, not at the very beginning, but many of which are now available online, are really spectacular if you go back and hear through them. All of the amazing people on this campus, from the astronomers to the basketball coaches to the physicists to the Middle Eastern studies people to the experts in Amazon folklore to, you know, it's Berkeley. It's just amazing. And... um, And I'm very grateful to all the readers today. I'm going to introduce a few, and then I'm going to turn things over to Dave Dewar, who who, uh, makes this possible. The library sponsors us every year. I just want to say a word about this year's program of readings. It's a particularly spectacular one, I think. Three of the most powerful and um, original poets of, of my generation are going to be reading in the series. My colleague, Lynn Hegenian, who was one of the initiators of language poetry, who kind of single-handedly with her writing revived interest in Gertrude Stein and with the women's experimental tradition in poetry. The other figure who did that was Kathleen Fraser at San Francisco, half the year now, half the year in Rome. Started a magazine in the 1980s called However, which was a magazine of feminist experimental writing. I think it was rooted in, it was at a moment when everyone was reading Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, and she thought to herself, 
there is a tradition of women who don't commit suicide <laughs> who've written very inventively in, in the poetry. In, and we're going to track that tradition. It's been enormously influential that book, and she's never read in the Noon series before, so I think you'll find it extremely rich. And, and then Joy Graham, uh, the, the month after her, who's probably the most honored uh, poet in the, in the country and one of the most brilliant. Uh, a young poet, Vietnamese-American poet, Kathy Park Hong, will be, uh, re- I said v- Vietnamese, and she's Korean-American poet, who's in some ways invented her own language. Uh, Cecil Giscom, won the American Book Award this year, also a colleague in the department, African-American poet who writes about, um, about geography and architecture and the way the world is put together. And Aaron Shuren from San Francisco, a poet also of enormous original. Anyway, it's going to be very wonderful. Maybe not as wonderful as this, however, um, <laughs> where we have so many people from the campus um, uh, whom we've asked just to share a poem. And, and now we begin. Justin Brochers is going to be first. He's an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management and the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology at Berkeley. He's a wildlife ecologist and a conservation biologist by training. He founded the African Conservation Capacity Program at Berkeley's Biodiversity Health and Livelihoods Initiative with the help of students and collaborators. His work also considers, it says here, the economic, political, and cultural factors that are driven and drive changes in wildlife abundance and diversity. Um, There's a lot of language. Uh, Justin is one of the treasures of this campus and of the earth. The work he's doing in Africa on uh, the wild, on animals, on the connection of social and political pressures to that is really astonishing. I teach an environmental, introductory environmental course every year, and Justin, on his free time, comes in and lectures to the class, and every year they can hardly get up and walk out after he's through, both for what he has to say and for how brilliantly he's able for a group of young students to put together what the situation of the world is and what the complexities and possibilities of wildlife ecology are. It's just an amazement, and we're so glad to have him. Please welcome Justin Brochers. Okay. Thank you very much. This is going to be a major letdown after that intro. But... uh... But yeah, thank you, Bob, Giovanni, and Dave for uh, inviting me to be a part of this rich tradition, uh, particularly for a natural science scientist coming here. It's very exciting and fun. Um, poetry has been a constant companion for me in my life, and I, it was a huge struggle to try and identify a favorite poem to read today in a, in a moment of what I'll say is, was a, a sort of a, a, a moment of catastrophic overconfidence last night. I decided or made a decision um, that I am already regretting terribly, and that decision was to read a poem of my own making. So uh, <laughs> that's what you're going to get. It's not that it's my favorite poem. Someone said that to me. It's your favorite poem? Is your own poem? No, no, no. <laughs> but um, and I, uh, I mentioned this to my wife, and once the look of horror passed across her face, she said, maybe you could suggest or claim the poem as a lost, a lost work of Lee Young Lee or something like that. And um, I knew you would see through that, very, that lie very quickly. To make things even more embarrassing, I'm going to read a poem that I wrote 23 years ago. And like every, all of my poems, it's an amateur's effort. Um, but it remains meaningful to me because it relates to my lifelong effort to understand and combat 
humankind's pervasive uh, simplification of nature, as well as my own struggle with our loss of wild things. And the poem is called Delaware. Delaware. In the steamy, idle summer months, I would wake early and walk the beach to where the fishermen with thick gloves and thick arms pulled at the heavy nets. I would stand and watch as mysterious dark shapes were dragged from the rolling green curtain, put frantic and writhing in the sand, dying with the rising sun. Was always waiting, wishing for, waiting the mistaken catch of a toothsome great white, huge and mean like ones I'd seen in Cousteau's specials. I imagined how they might try to put it back in the ocean try to throw it back to the sea. But no great white or vengeful monster from the deep ever appeared in the acres of nylon netting, never saw any such thing, only enraged blue crabs and thousands of silver bodies gasping, little fish listless, accepting the coarse pale grains as an end to their life's journeys, waiting for the moon's surge to steal away with their dry bodies. Thank you. You were 23? It was 19. This wasn't known as beginner's luck. That's what that was. <laughs> sounded awfully good to me. And there's only a small audience. I, we wanted to say to you, the readers, just so that you don't feel anxious, that um, the website uh, for this set of readings gets about 50,000 hits. So, <laughs> so you will have an audience. <laughs> uh, our next reader is Beata Fitzpatrick. She's Associate Chancellor at UC Berkeley and serves as Senior Advisor and Chief of Staff to Chancellor uh, Virginow. She came to Berkeley in 2005 from the University of Toronto, where she uh, got her PhD in medieval studies. Toronto is one of the two or three best places in the English-speaking world to do medieval studies. So she came from um, the Middle Ages to the Chancellor's office at Berkeley to deal with, to deal with 21st century education at its most intense, and she's been an enormous gift to us since she's been here, and uh, continues to teach by offering a freshman seminar about what her experiences are called behind the scenes at Berkeley. Uh, please welcome her. Thank you very much. Uh, my background, actually, uh, even though I came from Canada, is Polish. And uh, so I have a Polish heritage, so it just seemed natural that for uh, my poem to read today, I would pick one by Czesław Miłosz. And my uh, family, actually, my parents were themselves uh, exiles in that uh, they had been taken prisoners of war uh, by Stalin and shipped to Siberia uh, during the Second World War and uh, then eventually found their way to Canada but were never able to return to Poland. 
And my mother particularly found solace in poetry and uh, wrote poetry herself uh, in Polish. Uh, my parents uh, have, you know, passed away, uh, but certainly reading Czesław Mulesz's poetry uh, and the wonderful Polish idiom, I hear their voices. Uh, they would not have known that uh, I came to Berkeley and would not, they were not college educated, so they would not have appreciated that I was at one of the world's great universities, but they would have been very proud that I was at the university where Czesław Miłosz uh, wrote and worked. And so the poem I've picked is one, of course, related to uh, the... Berkeley experience of an expatriate. And uh, I do actually, though, am aware that one has to be very careful uh, interpreting uh, too personally. And I actually uh, found in A Year of the Hunter, where Cheshwav Miłosz wrote uh, about letters that he received from people. And he said, it's a pleasure to learn you have helped someone and that someone feels that you are close and important to them. I shall never figure out, however, what my reception is in reality, and I always suspect such a radical transformation of the text according to the reader's own needs that I would not recognize my intentions in it. So with that, as a caution, I'm going to read with apologies to Czesław Miłosz and to uh, Thomas Mann, who no doubt influenced him, A Magic Mountain. I don't remember exactly when Budberg died. It was either two years ago or three. The same with Chen, whether last year or the one before. Soon after our arrival, Budberg, gently pensive, said that in the beginning it is hard to get accustomed, for here there is no spring or summer, no winter or fall. I kept dreaming of snow and birch forests, where so little changes, you hardly notice how time goes by. This is, you will see, a magic mountain. Budberg, a familiar name in my childhood. They were prominent in our region, this Russian family, descendants of German Balts. I read none of his works too specialized. And Chen, I have heard, was an exquisite poet, which I must take on faith, for he wrote in Chinese. Sultry October's cool Julys, trees blossom in February. Here, the nuptial flight of hummingbirds does not forecast spring. Only the faithful maple sheds its leaves every year. For no reason, its ancestors simply learned it that way. I sensed Budberg was right, and I rebelled. So I won't have power, won't save the world. Fame will pass me by. No tiara, no crown. Did I then train myself, myself the unique, to compose stanzas for gulls and sea haze, to listen to the foghorns blaring down below? Until it passed. What passed? Life. Now I am not ashamed of my defeat. One murky island with its barking seals or a parched desert is enough to make us say, yes, we see. Even asleep, we partake in the becoming of the world. Endurance comes only from enduring. 
With a flick of the wrist, I fashioned an invisible rope and climbed it, and it held me. What a procession! Quel délice! What caps and hooded gowns! Most respected Professor Blum Budberg, most distinguished Professor Chen, wrong honorable Professor Miwosh, who wrote poems in some unheard of tongue. Who will count them anyway? And hear sunlight, so that the flames of their tall candles fade. And how many generations of hummingbirds keep them company as they walk on, across the magic mountain, and the fog from the ocean is cool, for once again, it is July. <laughs> Oh, thank you yeah, so much for that. I think of those lines every summer in the middle of when I'm starting to really grumble about the weather in Berkeley. I always <laughs> think of him feeling completely alone, writing poems to the seagulls, and that line, I threw a rope in the air, I climbed it, it held me. He really did do that. We all do that. Everybody throws their own rope in the air and, and climbs it, even if it's foggy in July. Um, our next reader is my colleague from the English department, Donna Jones. She's the author of Racial Discourse of Life Philosophy, Negritude, Vitalism, and Modernity. The French um, francophone poets who invented negritude writing, a self-conscious black writing, were readers of the... Um, of the Parisian philosopher Henri Bergson, a whole bunch of forces from the 20th century meet and gather in those writers and that philosopher at that time, and no one had really looked at it and taken it apart and said what it's like, and Donna did in a gorgeous book. Um, She's worked on two new projects, The Ambiguous Promise of European Decline, Race and Historical Pessimism in the Era of the Great War, and The Tribunal of Life, Reflections on Vitalism, Race, and Biopolitics. She has a big vision, and she writes wonderfully. Please welcome Donna Jones. I love um, thank you, Bob, and thank you, Giovanni, um, and thank you, everyone, for um, coming to these wonderful events that keep poetry alive. It's very funny. Um, I, I'm not a poetry person, even though I'm in the English department, and I don't say that as in um, I love poetry, but um, I think a great deal about prose, and um, even though I wrote a good deal about the negritude poetry, uh, negritude poetry I, I always think my default position is prose, but then I realized that so much of my early formation was in and through poetry. The reason I became, a, I feel, went into academia is because of poetry. From very early on, um, limericks that my grandfather or great-grandfather used to tell me, um, and it just kept going through my mind this morning, like thinking, what was your first poem? And I remember my great-grandfather was about 98, and he used to tell me this little, not a limerick, but a ditty he called it. It was, once upon a once upon a time, a goose went blind and a monkey chewed tobacco in a streetcar line. The streetcar broke, the monkey got choked, and that was the end of the big fat joke. <laughs> so that was my first poem. 
Um, but I did not choose that poem for today. <laughs> or the ditty, as it were. Um, I chose a poem, actually, when I was an undergraduate. Um, I was really fascinated with, um, with translation. I was a German major. Um, and I love translation a great deal. And the poet Georg Trakel, um, he's an Austrian poet. And um, an Austrian poet who wrote during the 1920s. And he was a, a war poet, um, uh, one of the German language war poets, actually, a veteran of the First World War. Um, one of the things that I loved about his poetry, and that really was confounding and precisely made me think, you're not really a prose poet person, you're really a poetry person, was that the language was so deeply condensed. There was so much in colors, there was so much in tone, and there was so much in this man's pain. He had lived through the Great War, he had fought in some of the worst battles. At the moment, I'm working on a, um, a kind of a cultural history of the Great War and, and the question of decline. Um, and so I'm looking at the many different literary moods of decline, historical moods of decline, and just the question of a zeitgeist. What does it mean to be living in a period where you can't really predict the future and you see the end of everything you've known? Um, and uh, how, what, what the, the, different, the different modes of, of narration, the different engagements, different levels of engagement. And I just thought, this was Trakala. He's been a persistent figure for me, a persistent uh, 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 figure intellectually, but also just emotionally, because I don't think anyone really speaks to a zeitgeist, and it also speaks to the way poetry can just speak to time and condensed time, sentiment, the feeling of a time. This poem is called Grodek, and it's um, a poem that's written about a battlefield, um, and it's a poem that I will read. I'll read the German and I'll read the English. It's just very, very beautiful poem and incredibly sad, too. I hope I'm not the only one with the downer poem. But okay, So I'll read the German first. Um, Am Abend tonen die herbstlichen Wälder von tödlichen Waffen, die goldenen Ebenen und blauen Seen, darüber die Sonne düsterer hinrollt, umfängt die Nacht stürmenden Krieger, die wilde Klage ihrer zerbrochenen Münde. Doch Stille sammelt im Weidengrün rotes Gewolk, darin ein surrender Gott wohnt, das vergossene Blut sich, mündene Kühle. Alle Straßen münden in schwarzen Verwässung unter goldenem Gezweig der Nacht und Sternen. Es schwankt der Schwester Schatten durch dem schweigenden Hähn. Zu Größen die Geister der Helden, die blütenden Haupte. Und leiser tönen im Ruhr die dunklen Flüten des Herbster. O stolzer Trauer, ihr ernenen Eltäre, die heiße Flamme des Geistes nährt heute ein gewaltiger Schmerz die ungeborenen Enkel. And here's the, um, the English translation. It's a translation I did when I was an undergraduate, and I'm somewhat proud of it. At evening, the woods of autumn are full of tones, of the weapons of death, golden fields, and blue deeps over which the darkening sun rolls down. Night gathers in dying recruits the animal cries of their burst mouths. Yet a red cloud in which a furious god 
the spilled blood itself has its home, silently gathers a moonlight coolness in the willow bottoms. All the roads spread out into the black mold, under the gold branches of the night and stars. A sister's shadow falters through the diminishing grove to greet the ghosts of the heroes, bleeding heads, and from the reeds the sounds of the dark flutes of autumn rise. O oh, prouder grief, you bronze altars, the hot flame of the spirit is fed today by a more monstrous pain, the unborn grandchildren. So I have the pleasure of introducing Catherine Koshland, and then Dave Dewar will um, take over. Uh, Vice President, Vice Provost Catherine Koshland is responsible for teaching, learning, academic planning, and facilities. And she is the Wood Calvert Professor in Engineering and Professor in Engineering in Energy and Resources in Public Health. Environmental health has been her field. Um, the intersection of air pollution, combustion, energy, and um, the way people live. Could hardly find a more powerful or important subject at the moment. And as vice provost, she's been committed to working collaboratively with faculty, staff, and students, providing an exceptional environment for teaching and learning. It's hard to imagine she does all the things she does. Thank you so much for being here. Please welcome Catherine Koshlin. Thanks, Bob. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to um, cheat a little bit because I actually have three poems, but they're all short. Um, I picked the first one, which is um, by Anne Bradstreet. This was a, is a poet um, that I first encountered um, as a student at Haverford and Bryn Mawr Colleges when I took a women's history course and was delighted to discover that um, women could write very powerful poetry, and, and it's one that has stayed with me for a long time. There's a theme running through these poems, too, partly about love in different ways. Um, so this is the one, To My Dear and Loving Husband. If ever two were one, then surely we. If ever man were loved by wife, then thee. If ever wife was happy in a man, compare with me, you women, if you can. I prize thy love more than whole mines of gold or all the riches that the east doth hold. My love is such that rivers cannot quench nor aught but love from thee give recompense. Thy love is such I can no way repay. The heavens reward thee manifold, I pray. Then while we live in love, let's so persevere that when we live no more, we may live ever. The second poem um, is special to me because there's a long tradition of writing poems um, in the Koshlin family that goes back at least three generations to my husband's um, great-great-grandmother and continues with our children today. And this was a poem written by my father-in-law, Dan Koshland, um, who was a faculty member here at, at, at Berkeley. And it's a tribute poem to his father on his 75th birthday. You have to understand, too, though, of course, there are little tweaks and, and some inside jokes in this, but um, bear with me. Um, Dad is a wonderful guy, and yet he treated us well. We're not upset. We weren't beaten. We weren't whipped. But for life in the 60s, we were not equipped. <laughs> For though we were raised in Berkeley's West, 
What did he give us to protest? Other kids got exposed to drugs, were raised in neighborhoods with thugs, learned to live with filth and shame. All we saw was the creme de la creme. Other kids were taught to beat the fuzz, to do as Sonny Liston does. Other kids got their krauts and bean. We just got stuffed with haute cuisine. Our hair was cut fantastically often, baths and showers so the brain did soften. We hadn't a chance, but we survived. The overprotected, non-deprived. All the in-group is alienated, grew up with egos suffocated. How can kids now ever make good when all their lives they've been understood? So our father is out of date, born before 1948. The standards then were solid gold. After they made him, they broke the mold. But the skies of this world would be true blue if all God's children were just like you. And then the last one I couldn't resist because it's fall, it's football season, and um, it's a poem by A.A. Milne called Lines and Squares. Whenever I walk in a London street, I'm ever so careful to watch my feet. And I keep in the squares and the masses of bears who wait at the corners all ready to eat. The sillies who tread on the lines of the street go back to their lairs. And I say to them, bears, just look how I'm walking in all of the squares. And the little bears growl to each other, he's mine, as soon as he's silly and steps on a line. And some of the bigger bears try to pretend when they come around the corner to look for a friend. And they try to pretend that nobody cares whether you walk on the lines or squares. But only the sillies believe their talk. It's ever so important how you walk. It's ever so jolly to call out, bears, just watch me walking in all the squares. Jeez, thank you, Kathy. That was lovely. She is a Go Bears person for all the other things she does here. You just have to know that. So, um, Lawrence Rinder is the uh, director of the UC Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive, BAM, as we affectionately call it. Um, previously, he was curator of contemporary art at the Whitney in uh, back there in that other town that, that we, we aspire to, I guess, in some ways, and also dean at the college, at the uh, California College of the Arts. Um, you, you need to know Larry has a project before him of moving the art museum down to its new digs, and they're still raising the end of the money they need, and it is the most ambitious and worthy thing, and he is relentless. Um, as a development director myself, I, I just I envy his enthusiasm, but uh, he is also a published poet, novelist, essayist, and playwright. And so let's see what he has for us today. Larry. Thank you so much. Well, the last thing I thought this was going to be was a campaign pitch. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I guess everything, everything is these days. Um, it's really great to be here uh, to read a poem. Uh, I'm really a very visual person, and I find uh, a lot of poetry to be quite impenetrable. So... I've recently found that translating or attempting to translate poetry offers a really great uh, avenue into the viscera of a poem, and I've enjoyed doing it. Uh, so I'm going to read a translation that I did recently of a poem by Stefan Mallarmé called Tired of the Bitterness. And I'll, I'll dedicate this poem to my grandmother, Rose, who studied French here at Berkeley about 100 years ago. Tired of the Bitterness. Tired of the bitterness by which my indolence offends ideals for which I once fled child sense. I love forests, 
simply for their roses and their azure sky. And completely sick of it, but still I try to dig ritually a brand new drain nightly from the cold and greedy soil of my brain. A grave digger without pity for my own sterility. So dreams, what shall I tell the dawn if roses visit me? And frightened of those pure white flowers, the cemetery's hole upon empty hole empowers. I'd reject the art world's ravenous trends and smile at the worn reproaches of my friends, forget the past, the sly ambitions, everything that knows these rough conditions to cultivate a mind that's clear, an open heart. I would paint upon a bowl, make art from snowflakes stolen from the moon, breathe deep the fragrance of exotic blooms, the lucid aroma of life and infancy, wafting from the soul's blue filigree. And such as death within the shaman's only dream, I'd choose a youthful and idyllic scene to paint with serenity, upon the frozen bowl, a single line that vanishes amid the hole, a lake blue beneath the bracing air, moon's crescent lost in morning's whiteness where it calmly dips into a chilly pool. All knows this by three tall reeds of emerald green roses. Thank you. My good friend Colleen Rivetti will read next, and we appreciate that she's here to do this. Colleen is the, well, whatever this title is, I know what she does, the Executive Director of External Relations and the Office of Protocol at UC Berkeley. Know this, when Bill Clinton was on campus, she organized him. I'll tell you that much. That's all you need to know. She's worked here since 1993, loves the opportunities that have been provided, working on a variety of interesting programs. And I'll tell you, she works on all the programs, so they're all interesting. She has two amazing kids, a wonderful husband, and a ridiculously cute dog named Kona. I don't know. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> while she's a native of San Diego, she did receive her uh, psychology bachelor's degree here from UC Berkeley. And I'm very pleased to welcome Colleen Rivetti. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, Giovanni. Uh, this is not a place I normally stand. I put people over here. Um, I was asked to do this, and I was a little puzzled by that, and I'm honored to be here. I didn't think much about poetry since I graduated from Cal, and so when I was asked to pick a poem, I struggled a little bit, actually a lot. Um, mostly my poetry exposure has been Bob and um, Shel Silverstein, so... <laughs> I am fortunate to have a younger sister who is at the Master of Fine Arts program at Victoria University in New Zealand, and her head of school is a man named Bill Manhire. And so we went through a lot of his poems. Apparently, he's very swoony. The girls like him quite a lot. I didn't ever see what he looked like, but he does have a lovely voice. And I chose my poem because I liked the way that the words felt in my mouth, and I liked the ebb and flow of it. So I hope you will, too. A song about the moon. 
The moon lives by damaging the ocean. The moon lives in its nest of feathers. The moon lives in its nest of clamps. The moon lives by aching for marriage. The moon is dead. It has nothing to live for. The bodies are dangerous. You should not touch them. The bodies resemble our own. They belong together. The bodies are weapons. Someone will die of them. The bodies will not lack for wings. Someone will find them. The bodies were maimed, but you will not remember. Do you still suffer terribly? Do you always speak French? Do you stare at the moon for you cannot forget it? Do you long to be emptied of nothing but feathers? Do you want to go on like this almost forever? You must abandon everything after all. You must abandon nothing, at least not yet. You must abandon hilarity. You must abandon your flags. You must abandon your pain. It is someone else's. You must abandon poetry, for you cannot forget it. You must abandon poetry. It never existed. You must abandon poetry. It has always been fatal. It is like the moon. It is like your face. It is like your body. Thank you. We like to challenge people with new experiences. So this is good. If you like this, we'll do more programs for you. This is good. Deborah Sanyal is an associate professor of French, author of The Violence of Modernity, Baudelaire, Irony, and the Politics of Form. Bob would have something wonderful to say at this point about that, but I, I fear I'm, I'm just tr I, channeling him. It would do no good. <laughs> Currently, she's completing a book titled Dangerous Intersections, Complicity, Allegory, and the Holocaust Memory in Postwar France. Uh, Deborati Sanyam. Hi. I'm very happy to be here, and the invitation actually gave me um, an excuse to take a trip down memory lane and very vividly remember the circumstances of my first serious encounter with uh, poetry, and it happened to be with Baudelaire. <laughs> um, this was, I think I was a sort of precocious, bookish, and bored child on a rainy Sunday in some friend's grandmother's attic um, in Normandy, and there were all these old editions of poetry, and so I thought, you know, I'll memorize a poem by this guy called Baudelaire, and he hasn't really left me since. So um, I'm going to read um, a very short, it's a sonnet, a poem for you called Recueillement, and since it's so short, I thought I would read it in French and then in English translation. Recueillement. Sois sage, ô oh ma douleur, et tiens-toi plus tranquille. Tu réclamais le soir, il descend, le voici. Une atmosphère obscure enveloppe la ville, aux uns portant la paix, aux autres le souci. Pendant que des mortels, la multitude de villes, sous le fouet du plaisir, ce bourreau sans merci, va cueillir des remords dans la fête servile, ma douleur, donne-moi la main, viens par ici, loin d'eux. Vois se pencher les défuntes années sur les balcons du ciel en robe surannée, surgir du fond des eaux le regret souriant. Le soleil moribond s'endormir sous une arche, et comme un long linceul traînant à l'Orient, entends, ma chère, entends la douce nuit qui marche. This is translated as meditation. Be still, my sorrow. Hold to your tranquility. 
You pled for evening, darkness falls, the evening's here. A somber air pervades the city, quietly bestowing peace on some, to others bringing care. While all those loathsome multitudes of mortals loll beneath the whip of lust, the executioner, or scrabble for remorse in craven festival, my sorrow, take my hand and come away, come far from all of them. Behold the dead years leaning down from balconies of heaven, dressed in faded gown. Up from the water's depths, regret has risen, smiling. The dying sun has sunk asleep beneath its arch, and like a winding cloth that from the east comes trailing, we hear, dear one, we hear the tender night's approach. Thank you. Sanchita Saxena has been the uh, associate director at the Center for uh, South Asia Studies, CSAS, for those of us in the know, at UC Berkeley since 2007. She's also held positions as a public policy fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and as the assistant director of economic programs at the Asia Foundation here in San Francisco. Um, her forthcoming book is about policy networks in the garment industries in Bangladesh, Cambodia, and Sri Lanka. Sanchita. Thank you very much. It's really a great um, honor to be here. Uh, over 20 years ago, as an impressionable undergraduate at UC Davis, um, I was really lucky to be exposed to many great poets and writers. In one particular class on feminist poetry, uh, I was stuck by the powerful writings of Sylvia Plath and Audre Lorde and Anne Sexton, and I actually, I too wondered why many of them seemed to commit suicide. It was a bit of a um, startling revelation at that time. When I received this opportunity to speak today, I really wanted to pay tribute to a poet um, who is a very you know, well-known feminist poet, public intellectual and activist, Adrian Rich, who passed away earlier this year. And news of her passing really brought me back 20 years ago when I first read Adrian Rich and all these other poets for the first time and kind of that excitement um, of, of you know, being exposed to them for the first time. So today I wanted to read um, Aunt Jennifer's Tigers, which, uh, like many of Rich's poems, really focuses on uh, you know, the challenges and obstacles women face, both in their family lives and in the larger society. Aunt Jennifer's Tigers. Aunt Jennifer's Tigers prance across a screen, bright topaz denizens of a world of green. They do not fear the men beneath the tree. They pace in sleek, chivalric certainty. Aunt Jennifer's finger fluttering through her wool find even the ivory needle hard to pull. The massive weight of uncle's wedding band sits heavily upon Aunt Jennifer's hand. When aunt is dead, her terrified hands will lie, still ringed with ordeals she was mastered by. The tigers in the panel that she made will go on prancing, proud and unafraid. Thank you. I did want to mention that we are in the Morrison 
library. And for those of you that don't know this, there are probably just a few of you, but I have to mention it. We're approaching our 84th uh, anniversary of this room, which was created by May Treat Morrison in memory of her husband, Alexander Morrison. And this this wonderful library has looked like this principally since 1928 when it first opened. And so it's always fitting to have this great environment for inspirational poems and other things that we do here. So I need to give the library commercial this time, uh, Larry, because uh, we're always uh, happy that the public can come in here without any encumbrance and visit. And you're always welcome to come in here. It is a recreational library which means you can't study here, use cell phones, laptops, or any of those sorts of things. But you can read and listen to CDs that you can check out. Anyway, that all being said, and there's sort of a connection here. Alex Schwartz is the Director of Academic Planning in the College of Letters and Science, where she's in charge of programs such as the freshman and sophomore seminars, the LNS Discovery courses, on the same page, and the Big Ideas courses, on the same page this year is featuring a wonderful collection of Ansel Adams uh, photographs that an exhibit will open later this month in the Bancroft Gallery. It is the Fiat Lux uh, publication that uh, Adams was commissioned by Clark Kerr to produce for the UC system, and it was printed in 1968 on the 100th anniversary of the university. And uh, Alex has been coordinating a program where all of the entering freshman students receive a reprint of this wonderful volume with assignments. And so I think it's wonderful that she's accepted our assignment to come here and be creative. Alex. And thank you, Dave, for plugging my program. Um, Some of my favorite writers are my ex-students, and I think anyone who teaches probably feels the same way. You meet them when they're 18, they write like 18-year-olds, and then over the decades they mature as writers, and I have students who become published novelists. One of my students has written about 12 volumes of literary criticism, far surpassing me by about a figure of 12. And, um, <laughs> and uh, one of my students is a, a pretty successful playwright. Um, but it took them decades to get that good. Well, the um, student, the ex-student of mine whose poem I'm going to read today is the exception. She was already great when she was 18. Um, she took a seminar from me, a freshman seminar in 1998 called Literary Gender Benders. And um, I gave them a, the students an assignment to write a literary gender bender as their final project. And um, this is what she wrote. And she actually took this poem to the nationals of the um, Poetry Slam competition. She was on the Berkeley team. She, they won. Um, and um, I'm only going to read you the first half because of time constraints and um, sexual content <laughs> in the second half. Um, so this is called Etc. and All That Jazz, and it's by Ariana Waynes. And I'm not a slam poet, so forgive me. A beer. It started with a beer in a bar. I bought for you, you bought for me. I picked you up with, was picked up with a beer. Had I ever been so bold to ask to say yes, to make eye contact, to hold an offered gaze? Was I so lonely, brazen, drunk, trusty, trusting, horny, rich to think that someone like you could be bought with a beer, so poor that a beer was all it took? Nickels into a jukebox, a maybe in your eyes, in mine, a hand offered smaller than I'd expected, False starts and leading being led across the four-by-six-foot excuse for an almost maybe dance floor. My toes were crushed beneath your accidental step. I apologized for tromping on your feet. We fumbled. It was all over. It was a bad idea. It was not. 
the truck driving types pointedly ignoring us. Who cared that the races weren't right, that the faces didn't quite mesh, that we could be lynched the moment we stepped out the door? We stepped out of the door. You held it for me. I opened it for you and stood there, my fingers shivering on the metal. I'd never done anything like this before. You said it might be fun. The car, the truck, the key in the ignition, the hair twirling around the finger, the nervous closeness, the broken heater, the jokes hanging out the window, my fingers on the steering wheel, my hands fixing the rearview mirror while you drove. Don't look back. Don't look back. The jokes, the infinite maybes and what-ifs with finite solutions and consequences, and weren't we supposed to be adults? And whatever happened to all those responsibilities like jobs and families and cats and parakeets and sons and nieces and nosy aunts and boyfriends and wives and something called Sunday dinner forgotten because of some tight fabric stretched across delicate, oversized shoulders beneath a round, square face that held eyes nearly as thirsty as mine. And maybe that was a first. And maybe you were like water, but you didn't know it. And maybe you were like fire, and I just couldn't see it. And maybe we wouldn't get burned, but maybe we would. Whoa. Wow. That was, yeah. (laughs) I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, David Sklansky teaches and writes about criminal law, criminal procedure, and the law of evidence. He joined the Berkeley faculty in 2005, following a decade at UCLA, and has won the campus-wide distinguished teaching awards both at UCLA and this last year here at Berkeley. We always like to have one of our distinguished teaching award winners read poetry. And before becoming a law professor, he worked for seven years as a federal prosecutor. David, welcome. It's a thrill and a little humbling to be part of this program, uh, particularly in this room, which meant uh, quite a lot to me when I was an undergraduate here. Um, I'm going to cheat a bit, too, and read uh, a pair of sonnets uh, about New York waterways by uh, an underappreciated 19th century poet. Uh, The second one is famous. Uh, The first one is less well-known, but neither of them, I think, uh, are as familiar as uh, they deserve to be, and I think they work kind of nicely together. The first one's called Long Island Sound. I see it as it looked one afternoon in August, by a fresh, soft breeze or blown. The swiftness of the tide, the light thereon, a far-off sail white as a crescent moon, the shining waters with pale currents strewn, the quiet fishing smacks, the eastern cove, the semicircle of its dark green grove, the luminous grasses and the merry sun in the grave sky, the sparkle far and wide, Laughter of unseen children, cheerful chirp of crickets, and the low lisp of rippling tide. Light summer clouds, fantastical asleep, changing unnoted as I gaze thereon. And these fair sounds and sights I made my own. So the second sonnet is called The New Colossus, and I have a fantasy about um, all American grade school children being asked to learn uh, to recite this by heart. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here by our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. 
Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Well, you see, Donna, it's good people can memorize things and recite them from, from yeah, it, it, this is a good thing. Our final reader today, Andrew Stewart, is the Nicholas C. Petrus Professor of Greek Studies in the Departments of History of Art and Classics, and yeah, well, you know, <laughs> and chair of the Graduate Group in Ancient History and Mediterranean Archaeology. Now retired from active field archaeology, he specializes in Greek art and in the Greeks in the East before and after Alexander. He spends his free time sailing his 38-foot sloop obsession hmm, on San Francisco Bay, playing with his twin granddaughters, Giselle and Sophia, and ministering to his wife, uh, Darlis, uh, uh, menagerie of cats. I think that's a good explanation. Andrew. Thank you. It's an honor to be asked to read here. Um, This uh, room holds particular affection for me because my father used to come here every day when he was living with me down in Albany. He used to walk up here in his uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s to read always the Times. (laughs) I'm going to read a short epigram by Orsonius, first in the original Latin and then in my own translation, uh, perhaps foolishly. Since Orsonius isn't exactly a household name today, you might like to know something about him. Decimus Magnus Orsonius was born around AD 310 in Bordeaux to the physician Julius Orsonius and a local landowner, Emilia Ionia. He was educated at Bordeaux, Toulouse, and Constantinople, and he became a professor of rhetoric in Bordeaux and then a professor and tutor to the future Emperor Gratian. Living up to his name, Gratian gratefully made him Praetorian Prefect of Gaul and in 379 Consul. The students here have got that, right? (laughs) Gratitude, okay. When Gratian was assassinated four years later, you can forget that one, Orzonius retired to his estates near Bordeaux and spent the rest of his days there composing poetry and writing to eminent contemporaries, several of whom had been his pupils. He appears to have been a late and perhaps not very enthusiastic convert to Christianity. He died in 394, a mere 15 years before the Visigoths crossed the Rhine and put an end to the Roman Empire. Ozonius's best-known poems are the Mosella, a moving description of the river Moselle, Ephemeris, an account of a typical day in his life, and the epigram I'm going to read today. For Ozonius and I have more than one thing in common. Like him, I married my longtime partner when we were both in our 60s. So I translated this poem to read at our wedding. I hope you'll enjoy this little masterpiece from the twilight of the Roman Empire. First in Latin. Uxor, vivamus quod viximus, et teneamus nomina quae primus umpsimus in talamo. Nec ferat ulla dies ut comutemur in aivo. Quin tibisim juvenis tuque puella michi. Nestorisim quam vis proectio aimela quannis. Vincas cumanam tu quoque dei foben. Nos ignoremus quid sit matura senectus. Shire aivi meritum, 
no numerare decet. And now, wife, let us live as we have lived, and let us keep those names we took when first in bed alone. Nor let the days see changes wrought in us by age when I cease to be your lad and you my lass. Though I am more advanced in years than old Nestor, and you outdo the Sibyl of Cumae, let's stay oblivious to what old age might hold. Let's prize the passing years, not count them up. On, on behalf of the library, I would like to thank all of our readers. This was marvelous. It's always a great time. And the 17th year commencing here means something. So this, this, is, this, is, this is a very good thing for me. I did want to plug one of the things. Story Hour in the Library, our prose series, uh, will commence next week on Thursday. We're moving back to the 5 to 6 p.m. time, so hopefully that's more convenient. Rebecca Solnit will be here reading. We have many other great readers also, I would encourage you to look forward to Valentine's Day with Joyce Carol Oates, an interesting prospect. So I would like to turn this over to Giovanni to say goodbye. Thank you. What a great, great reading. Um, thank you all for coming and hope to see you next month. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.